Hello, beloved listeners. This is Octavia's Parables, where we are reading Octavia E. Butler's classic works one chapter at a time to apply the wisdom to modern life, learn everything we can. And right now we are reading Wild Seed. This week we're on chapter 12. I am your co-host, Adrian Marie Brown, here with the incredible Toshi Regan. It's true. And Toshi, (laughs) (laughs) do we have any announcements this week? My announcement is I will be um, hosting my annual birthday concerts in New York City, January 26th to 30 at Joe's Pub, and the tickets are on sale, and the Sunday night show will be all songs from the Bernice Johnson Regan songbook, our sacred, sacred music show. Mm. And um, and then the next month, we will be in Boston with uh, Parable of the Sower, the Opera, and we will be in Champaign-Urbana right after that. So a lot's going on. I'm really excited mm. to get into rooms with people. We, of course, will take exquisite care of each other. Oh, always, every single time. That's really good news. I don't have any announcements. I'm like, <laughs> I'm tired. I'm taking a break. Um, I'm tired of taking a break, and then they'll just let me like let me just throw these books at you later. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. My friends are all trying to help intervene on me because they're like, you know, when you take a break, you're always writing a book, and yeah, that's not a break. <laughs> but I'm like, I know, but. Then it's the only thing I'm doing when I take a break. I'm only writing a book. And, you know, they're like, no, that's not how it works. We need actual rest. But we'll figure it out before someday. I don't know. I mean, I think you love, I love, you love writing. I love writing. Like, when it's I take a like break, I'm still me. writing songs. Exactly. It's just like, it's not yeah. like the muse waits, you know. I'm like, there's still, I wake up in the morning with things, right, you know, poems yep. and things, so. The break is just to give myself more room for that. (laughs) So, all right. Mm -hmm. So here we are. Um, We're in chapter 12. You know, last chapter was hard. Doro has found on Yanwu after a century of of her being able to hide and be away from him and live her life. And now he's back. He's present. And they have negotiated that he's going to be around and his people are going to be around. So now we get to see what that looks like. Yeah, it's it's not good. You know, Doro just messes everything up. And yeah. um, even when he could do cool things, he's he doesn't know how to do them. Um, here we are at Anyanwu's, you know, beautiful place. And as she had negotiated with him that he could bring her people, you know, that might need some support in their healing and in their, their transitions and... And also that he could bring um, someone for her daughter and someone for her son. And so he brings this uh, Joseph, Joseph Toller as a husband um, for one of Anyamu's daughters. And um, this young man, he just came in and changed everything. He changed the whole culture of the place. This was a place that was really, you know, humming beautifully. And then he shows up and he just disrupts everything. He doesn't want to work. He doesn't want to do anything. And he's just like, you know, he's pampered. He wants to drink and gamble and, you know, hang out, you know, with with women. And he's a, a beautiful young man, honey colored with curly black hair, tall and slender. And Anyamu's daughter, Margaret Nyeka, 
was fascinated by him and she accepted him very quickly. And so this is what's going to happen. That's going to be her husband. And, um, but he was just a whole lot of, of trouble. Um, he was, he was not good energy to have around the, you know, this place. And so Anyanwu had been away healing this four-year-old who wandered down to the bayou and surprised the water moccasin. And so, you know, Anyanwu was making the medicine inside of her body to heal this child and, you know, contemplating why, you know, why would you allow yourself to, you know, do this and hang out with snakes? You know, she's doing what she does. <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. and then when she gets back home, Stephen is like, he had to handle some business because Joseph tried to um, rape Helen, who was 11 years old. And that's the youngest daughter. That's his sister. And Anyanwu can't really comprehend this. She's just like, wait, wait, like, how could this even happen? Yeah. You know, and where is he? And so, you know, he's lying in front of the Duran cabin and he is, he is messed up. Stephen beat him badly and he's just got bruises everywhere. And Anyamu is like, he's never going to be beautiful again. Like he, a, a whole ear is missing and, you know, his face is is never going to, it's like, she's a healer, but she can't fix that. Yeah. And, um, she goes to him and she's, and he's just in so much pain. And she says, be thankful that Stephen caught you. She said, because if it had been me, you, you would take no more interest in women. I promise you. And mm. I think we all know what that means. Yeah. So, but even though she has those words, she actually tends to him. And she brings him back into the house. And I was like, man, we don't do that no more. We know, like, <laughs> somebody has done something. We like, you can't come back into the house. Like, mm-hmm. you got to go away or you got to go get dealt with, but you, you're not coming back in here. Yeah. And then she gets to Helen, who also has another name. I'm saying, oh, Obegale. I, in my head, it's uh, Obiagele. But oh, be a jelly. Oh, I, I was like, like that. I don't I know. Like that. <laughs> it's just the brain I like does that. We don't know. Right? Yeah. You know, somebody's going to be like, y'all been messing up these names and they're going to help I us. Wa- um, please help us. Please help us. We, we, we are helpable. Okay. Yeah, we are totally helpable. But we honor these these beautiful names that Octavia. That's one of my favorite things is her is the names that yes. she names her characters. So Anyamu is really trying to find out what happened. And mm-hmm. the girl is like. He came into my thoughts, you know, like I could feel him come. I could feel it. I knew it was him. And he wanted me to go, go to Tina Duran's house. And, and she's like, did he, he made you go? And she's like, I don't know. And she just started to cry. It's like all very overwhelming. And Anyam was trying to comfort her. And, you know, uh, she has the name Helen from, from um, Helen Matthews, who had asked to give the child a name, but that, that's one of her names. And so she goes on to um, describe the attack. She says, I was getting water and I wanted to help Rita. You know, this was the, the cook and she was like a woman of black and Indian ancestry and a Spanish appearance and she needed water. So I was at the well and he came to talk to me and he said I was pretty. And he said he liked little girls and he said he had liked me for a long time. And I should have thrown him in the pigsty, she says. Oh, no, Anyamu says. And um, she's just thinking of all the terrible things she should should have done to him other than just bring him 
into the house. But basically, um, the child was like, then I was away from myself, someplace else, watching myself walk with him. I tried to turn back, but I couldn't. My legs were walking without me. She looked, she said, I, I never knew if Stephen was looking into my thoughts. Um, but Stephen can only look. She's like, he can't make you do anything. They're just trying to tell you the difference between these the superpowers here. Yeah. So Stephen can like look into your thoughts. Stephen is a wonderful and nice, balanced person. So, you know, that's not a hobby for him. It's like, is it helpful? He can do it. He's very gentle about it. Joseph can not only look into your thoughts, but Joseph can can take over your body. He can tell you tell you what to think and what to do on some like kind of subconscious level because it sounds like she could simultaneously see herself doing something else mm -hmm. and not have any control over it whatsoever. So she was she says we went into uh, the Tina's cabin and he was closing the door. When I found I could move my legs again, I ran out the door before he could get it shut. Then he took back my legs and I screamed and fell. I thought he would make me walk back, but he came out and grabbed me and dragged me back. And I think that's when Stephen um, saw us. And Anyamu is, is just, you know, she's beside herself. She wondered, like, you know, what Doro might have done to Stephen if Stephen had killed the worthless jo Joseph. She's just trying to think about what could happen. And Helen is like, he should have killed him. Like, you can't have this person, you know, around. Like, he can make my legs move again. Like, what are we going to do? Mm -hmm. And here, I think Helen has the right sense of emergency. Like, I, w I was like, well, why did she go to him first and not to mm -hmm. Helen? Yeah. Like, why did she, like, I don't know. You probably have questions. I've got questions about it. <laughs> okay. So I don't need to do that here. But I was like, what is the, you know, <laughs> that's not the order. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, you know, she was like, what will you do with him? And she's like, I'm going to have Doro take him away. And she was like, will Doro do that just because you say so? And, and Anyanwu was like, oh, right. Like, people doubt my ability to keep them safe from Doro. And so they're having this whole discussion and she's like, I will see to it. And then that night, um, Stephen walked in his sleep for the first time in his life. He walked out onto the upper gallery of the porch and fell, fell or jumped off. Um, there was no disturbance. Um, Stephen didn't cry out at dawn. And then uh, Louisa found him on the ground and he was in, in terrible shape. He's, there's no nothing where anybody could do to, to restore him. And so they're sitting there like, okay, this is, this is not all right. Like, why would he do this? What is this about? Like, they're not, they're not necessarily, you know, mm -hmm. making the connection, but they're like, what is it? Anyan was like, what is it? And she's like, it's an accident. And is it Joseph? And then this is like Joseph. Um, the son of a whore Doro, mm. <laughs> a son of a whore Doro has brought to marry one of Anyamu's daughters. You know, would I care if it were Joseph? And so Louisa is like having to tell her about Stephen, like this and what had happened. And Anyamu is still in this kind of like, why? Like what? Like this doesn't make any sense to her. Mm. It's kind of like these certain places that have happened in this story where we just find like Anyamu is so deep in her own, I think, this is the way I think about it. She's so deep in her own practice and her own culture 
that of of the way things should be or could be yeah. that sometimes she misses the things that are outside of that outside of that and how they act yeah. like you know she just it's like you know you can't bring a guy that just tried to rape your daughter and can like make legs move into your house yeah. like you got to kill that person that's that's what I'm like you got to kill him like how can you keep him around yeah he's not going to you know he's not going to be somebody you can control so you know there are people out there and they're looking at Steven and there's there's two children and there's a I I don't know how to say his name EA a tall yeah. handsome solemn woman of um utterly confused ancestry and it's funny <laughs> I, she says that here but when we get to parable land it's it's a completely different idea around like exactly. who people are exactly. yeah so French and African, Spanish and Indian. Um, the mixture blended all too well on her. And Louisa knew her to have 36 years, but she could have passed easily for a woman of 26 or even younger. And the children were her son and daughter. And the one in her belly would be Stephen's son or daughter. She had married a husband who loved wine better than he could love any woman. And wine finally killed him. So mm. um, this is this is Stephen's partner and who's um, carrying their, their baby. So she had given her a home, and um, when Stephen was old enough, she writes, he gave her something more. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is devastating. I don't know. There's not a lot to say. It's it's yeah. um, it's a sad reading here on page 250, but go on and be strong and read it. But, like, you know, they are, like, having this conversation about, um, what is happening and why is it happening? And basically, as they're in that thing, we see um, Helen and they, they, they hear a boy cry mm-hmm. and they look at him and then upward in the gallery, there's there's Helen. And she was climbing over the railing and instantly, you know, Anyama moves Louisa and she she runs. And when Helen jumps, Anyama is beneath her and catches her um, carefully. And now they know, like now there can be no doubt what's happening, yes. that Joseph is like up there, like doing what he do, even as he's been healed and has an opportunity to like actually save himself. He is, okay. he's not doing that. And so Anyamu shapes herself into the leopard shape. Mm-hmm. And then there is a massive fight. So mm-hmm. the door is shut, but Anyamu opens it with a single blow of her paw there's this like hoarse sound of surprise from the inside. And then this battle is different from the other ones. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So we know she can shift into this leopard one. Y'all remember early, early, early days yep. when one of Doro's sons tried to invade her mind and she shifted into the leopard and let him know what was, what was up. Yep. So this time the battle is more complicated because he is using his, his um, mind control ability to you know gain some leverage in this fight and so she's about to go for it and he's screaming and he throws his arms up to shield his throat and at the same moment he controls her legs and so she has no feeling in um in her legs and he's he's very fast you know because she's she's fast and she understands it so this is a fight between like who can occupy their gifts the quickest Mm -hmm. in the most like devastating ways so he does a, a blockage in her throat 
so she can feel her throat close. And then she locates the blockage and she opens up places beneath it. She makes a hole so that she can breathe. She's a leopard. I just want y'all to hold just this. Just see this. <laughs> see this. Yes. She makes these holes, but he jams his fingers into these holes. I know. I'm sorry, yeah. y'all. I should have given mm. a little bit of a trigger warning sorry. in this fight. It's not, <laughs> I'm like, it's ah. not beautiful. It's awful. It's a bad fight. And so mm-hmm. she might have collapsed at the raw agony, but now the image of her, her dead son was before her and her daughter nearly dead in the same way. And she's like, no, this isn't going to stop me. So eventually she gets to him and she rips his throat out and um, he was dying and she gave way to her own pain. It was too far gone to um, to hurt anymore. And he died with, you know, he died. I'm not going to describe it, but on page 253, 252 and 253, this fight is immense. Y'all go and read all of the words if you can deal with that. So she she kills Joseph as a leopard and it's a really strong and bloody fight. Louisa is like good riddance and are you hungry? And so she goes in the dining room and she goes to get her some food and she's like, nobody's supposed to be coming in and messing with her cause she just had a fight and she's in her leopard form and she needs to eat. That's right. But EA and Helen, they come through the front door and they come to see Anyamu still bloody from her kill and not yet gone to the living room. Mm-hmm. Anyangwu is, is this not a good time to be with her when she's in this place. Right. So they're like keeping a distance. But Helen is following Anyangwu and she's uh, struggling with uh, her fear and the fear smell and the blood smell and the hunger and the anger. And she didn't notice the child until they were both in the dining room. And Anyamu lay down on a rug before the cold fireplace and fearlessly the child comes to sit on the rug beside her. And Anyamu looked up knowing that her face was smeared with blood and wishing she had like cleaned herself before she came downstairs and cleaned herself and left her daughter in the care of someone more reliable. Helen stroked her and fingered her spots and caressed her as though she was a large house cat. Like most children born in the plantation, she had seen Anyamu change her shape many times. She was as accepting of the leopard now as she had been of the black dog and the white man Warwick, who was to put in um, an occasional appearance for the sake of the neighbors. Somehow, under the child's hands, Anyamu began to relax. After a while, she began to purr. And she says... Agu, the little girl said softly. Um, This was one of the few words of Anyamu's language Helen knew, and it meant simply leopard. And she says, Agu, be this way with Doro. He wouldn't dare hurt us when you're this way. Hmm. And so that's chapter 12. Be the leopard. Be the leopard. Yeah. Be the leopard and do what the leopard can do. That's right. Yeah, it's such an, yeah, anyway, I'm like, yes, child. (laughs) Yeah, there's so many questions for each chapter. This one is tender. And I want to start with just getting people into place to like really make the distinctions um, between the different spaces that are being cultivated. So really articulate for yourself, think it through, what is the culture 
of Anyanwu's place and people? Mm-hmm. How would you describe the culture that Anyanwu has created? What are the values? What have you picked up on as the way that things work there, right? Mm-hmm. And then what is the culture of Doro's people? You know, he has warned her in the last chapter. He's like, you don't even understand what I have created. Like, but what is the culture of Doro's people as as we see in Doro, as we see in Joseph? Mm. And then bring it home for yourself. It's like, what is the culture in which you're operating now? Like, if you think of the community that you're in, that you're in relationship with, what is the culture of your place, your people? On the spectrum, do you feel like you're closer to the Anyanwu culture, closer to the Doro culture, somewhere in between, somewhere beyond? Like, what are the values, the norms, the assumptions that work in your community, right? How how do you know when something has entered your community that is like, that doesn't work here, that's mm-hmm. at odds with this? And then... Have you ever experienced one person destroying a community or an organization or a culture, you know, one person coming in and really disrupting the norms in ways that were harmful? And if you can remember, how did you deal with it? What did you do? You know, once you realized what was happening, did you remove that person? Did you... Let them take the center of the culture and corrupt that space? Did you work with them to heal (laughs) what needed healing? Mm. What was possible? What felt possible? What did you do? What did you learn? Just reflecting on that. And then as always, I have questions about Yanwu's (laughs) decision-making. So... um, (laughs) What I want to say here is, where do you see fear in Anyanwu's choices? And where do you see strategy? And where do you see love? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I similarly had that experience of like, you always go to the victim first. Why are you running? Why are you going to Joseph and not Helen and not, not Obia Jelly? I think for me, I think it's a protection move, you know, that she's like, I need to make sure that Joseph is contained. And because of the fear I have of Doro, I need to make sure he's alive, right? Mm. But I wonder what our readers think. What do you see as the motivation for Anyanwu in there? And then for the choice not to kill Joseph, but also not to give him any pain relief. You know, like she's making these decisions and then the decision to actually kill Joseph. What is her level? What are we what are we mm-hmm. learning about Anyanwu? Okay. Yes. And then this is super tender. You know, this piece with Obia Jelly's near rape is super tender. And it feels so accurate to this kind of violation. Like mm-hmm. as a survivor in a community of survivors, this feels so familiar that feeling of like this person kind of got in my head and I was outside myself unable to really fully make decisions or change the course the trajectory of what happened and most of us don't have a Steven we don't have someone who's able to jump in 
and intervene and kick the ass of that person in real time, right? So I want us to think about that is like, how do we protect ourselves and our children against that? Mm-hmm. You know, like what are the conversations we have? What are the practices we have? What are the safety protocols we have, the safety networks we have? How do we structure community so that this isn't possible? I really, you know, as I was reading this chapter, I was thinking that the parallel reading for this is Tarana Burke's book that just came out, Unbound, where she talks about her assault and she talks about that experience of being taken outside yourself and then the shame that comes along with it that keeps you from calling out for help and getting the support, being able to interview and stop things. I think it's a really powerful read for anyone who's experienced something similar to this kind of violation of mind, the attempt, the manipulation. So not really a question there, but more just like making that connection that what's happening here to Obiajeli is something that happens all the time, every day to our kids. Mm-hmm. And we are a species that has not centered and learned how to protect our babies, um, but right. we need to, you know? So really be thinking, like if you're in community, if you have little ones in your community, just really be having those conversations around what you do with them and what you do with all of those around them to protect them. Yes. Yeah. And then there's so many moments in this chapter that break my heart. But one of the ones that is the most tender for me is that moment when when Anyanwu realizes that Helen is realizing how powerful Doro is and that Helen is starting to really doubt that Anyanwu could actually keep them safe. And, you know, Anyanwu says, you know, she reflects on that, that it's like it took her all of this time and patience and wisdom to build people's confidence in her. It took only a few weeks of Doro's presence to erode that confidence so badly that even her children doubt her. And I feel Mm -hmm. like I've seen this amongst the people, all the people I love who are raising kids is this moment when children recognize the truth about safety and power and Mm -hmm. how much we can and cannot protect them. So how do we navigate that? You know, how do we navigate that moment when children realize that truth and how do we keep building trust with them that they can trust us to do the very best we can and that we can trust them to let us know how to protect them. Like how do we navigate mm-hmm. that moment? Because Doro is all around us. Whew. And this the death of Joseph, I have to say, every time I read it, it gives me I think of it as a fantastical satisfaction. It really gives me a satisfaction, like the part of me <laughs> that that where that wound lives is like, this is what I want to happen to everyone who rapes kids and mm-hmm. everyone who rapes anyone. <laughs> it's just like, you need someone who can turn into a leopard and tear your throat out, you know? That's right. You need someone whose first response would be like, I can make it so you never want anyone again, you know? Like, <laughs> that there's someone who has the power to be like, you will not, right? So I have to admit that. Because y'all know me as a transformative justice person. I'm all about abolition. I'm all about finding ways that are are true to the problem that actually stop harm and reduce harm and break the cycles of harm. And I have to admit that this death is very satisfying. 
to me. It feels like the correct response. And I just have to name that. So I want to ask you all to reflect on that yourself. Does this death of Joseph satisfy something in you? Right? What does it bring to mind for you? And then does fantastical vengeance have the capacity to touch in and comfort our trauma? Mm-hmm. Does it do that for you? Because I think for me, being able to read this is is a rewiring. There's something about the fantastical exploration of this that is like, right, like that would be a legitimate response to this kind of violation. And that may never be what we want to do. We may want to find other options, but that would totally be a legitimate response, right? And then final question for this set. Wait, before you do that. Okay, so what do you think about like our modern times? Because we've had these like, you know, horrific public killings. Um, And then we've had the cases um, once they're surfaced, because sometimes they're hidden away and then they have to be surfaced. And then we have the victory, some of the victories. Yes. And, you know, I think different from George Floyd, there's this, you know, wisdom surfacing in movements where it is like, you know, you have a victory, but it's the victory in an unjust um, system. Right. And so, you know, we have to, we have to take that like that. You know, it's not like it's a victory inside of something that we all can feel proud of and feel, you know, so still the elation and the celebration and the like that people took enough, you know, perfect steps within this like corrupt system in order to get a victory that, you know, I don't even know if we call it healing as much as like it feels like it's it's sport. Almost like, can we, can we navigate? Can we win this now? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like a few ways about this, you know, for a long time in my life, I was very much a nonviolent pacifist, you know, like the orientation I had was like, there must be a nonviolent response and that violence Mm. begets violence. There's, you know, there's not a way to have that be, (laughs) to get us towards some kind of spiritual liberation. And I think in my heart of hearts, you know, I'm like, I can still see that to be the case. You know, there's never a moment when I'm sitting and meditating on the human condition where I'm like, yeah, we just need like violently take away all the monsters and like that'll do it, right? And one of the reasons for that is that Anyanwu I trust. You know, at this point in the story, even though I don't understand everything she does, I trust her intentions are good. Her intentions are trying to build family and protect life and move towards life. And Mm. what troubles me is that I don't feel that trust for the majority of other humans that are trying to make these decisions around what to do. Um, I think that was, you know, the intention of a jury was like, okay, you know, let's have a fair process by which we determine, you know, the outcomes, but there's, there's no objective process about that. So we don't, you know, in humans, we don't have that objective space. Mm. So when I think of our modern situation, that's why I fall so, so staunchly into the abolition realm, mm-hmm. you know, cause I, I think about what Miriam Kaba talks about where it's like, what we are trying to generate is consequences for harm, not punishment, mm-hmm. which we know doesn't work, but we do want to be able to have consequences and it is a consequence 
for instance, to lose your job if you have created, you know, certain kinds of harm, it is a consequence to lose your reputation if you have created certain certain harms. And I think there could be an argument. It's like this is a consequence. This is someone who mm-hmm. has created this violence, tried to rape someone and then murdered someone and then tried to kill another person. And right. it's like then, you know, I think another book for people to read if you're interested in these things is Woman on the Edge of Time by Marge Piercy. Um, mm. That's a book where when people have committed a crime, the first time you get a tattoo on you for having committed the crime, like an egregious crime. And then if you do it again, you're killed. There's no prisons. It's just no. like, okay, whatever that is in you that needs to do that, there's no room for that in our species, right? And I think there's always that, you know, it's like, okay, in Octavia's work, mm. I think there's a lot of places where she's trying to struggle with that. Is like, yeah. are there people who are beyond help, beyond reach, you know, that the harm has accumulated in them in such a way that they can't recover from it? And I think it's a worthy conversation and a necessary conversation because mm-hmm. whenever we're talking about abolition, people leap to that place. Well, what about right. the sociopaths? What about the monsters? And, mm-hmm. you know, Octavia says, we, thr- we rip their throat out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in a modern context, we have to have conversations where it's like, what do we do to actually create barriers? That's my, you know, the consequence for me is like, what is the barrier so that this monster cannot right. touch us in our community? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But I, you know, it, it is one of those things like you ask me, like someone comes for one of mine, <laughs> right? And I'm just like, <laughs> I've got a leopard in me. So, mm. you know, I think we all have that and there's something there's something constantly in me that's like, um, I want to not ever deny the complexity of, of mm-hmm. this, all the emotions that go into this. And, you know, I say this all the time that I think community is the answer because I'm like the person who's actually experiencing the harm, if they're the one who's got to make the decision about what happens, so often we're going to go towards the most vengeful response. Right. Right. And having community is what helps slow that down and say, wait, what happened? What happened to this person and what did they do? You know, I hear stories of people who are like, yeah, this person shot my son and I was able to forgive him and I was able to understand him. And in that understanding changed the trajectory of his life. You know, I've seen that happen. Know that that Mm. is also possible, right? Sometimes it's like a a monster is just someone who, whose humanity is so hard to see that no one can see it, you know? Mm. And like Dora was the ultimate monster. And it's like, what do you do for someone who manages to dodge all consequences? Right. Which leads me actually to my final question here, which is because this beautiful child, Helen, is here petting this bloody leopard who has just protected her, right? And says, you need to be in this form when Dora comes. And then then we'll be safe, basically. Like, yeah. I do trust that you'll be able to protect me in this form. And I think the question I have is, as a reader, as someone who's been following this story and, and knows that Doro can't read Anyanwu, can't find her when she's in animal form and all of that, could Anyanwu kill Doro in her animal form? Do you think she could? Hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you have to be no people around. That's what I was going to say. I was like, what do you do? Take them on a boat into the middle of the ocean? Just you and me, babe? You can't be no people because <laughs> they just hop into bodies. Yeah. I'm just like, can she just fly him out to the middle of somewhere and drop him? Anyway, <laughs> um, you know, it's like I'm always of two minds here. I'm like, does she need to just heal him or does she need to kill him? Oh, um, God. But yeah, what do you think she could do? So there we are. Chapter 12. Chapter 12, y'all. Mm-hmm. Octavia's Parables. Yeah, go it's hosted. Ahead. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. I'm like, okay. Octavia's Parables is hosted by myself, Adrian Marie Brown, and my beautiful co host, Toshi Regan. Our producer is Kat Aaron, our show artist from Krista Franklin, and we are transcribed by Jess Pinkham. You can find us on Twitter at O Parables, and soon you'll be able to find us on Instagram. You can become a patron and support our work at patreon.com slash oparables. And transcripts mm. for all episodes live at readingoctavia.com. And the music for Octavia's Parables is You Don't Know the Time, um, written and performed by Toshi Regan. And the Sower Song, written by Bernice Johnson Regan and performed by the cast of Octavia E. Butler's Parable of the Sower, Memorial Hall, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Yeah. And just so y'all know, we've got two chapters in the epilogue left. So keep tuning in. We're almost there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're almost there. See you next time. Next. A sower went out to sow her seed. A sower went out to sow her seed. A sower went out to sow her seed.